Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Lloyd Williams Jones. Hello there. And together, we're going to explore how we can get the most from talk in the classroom. But first, Chris, what you reading for? Hey, what you reading for? This week, I've been diving back into a book that I read, I think, about a year ago. It's quite an old one. Um, I was reminded of it by friend of the show, Neil Armand. Um, it's called Knowing and Teaching Elementary Mathematics by Leiping Ma, I think, or Leaping Ma. I apologise for the pronunciation. It's a really interesting exploration of the differences between certain aspects of mathematics teaching in America and China, an exploration of what can be achieved when a teacher has adequate or very good subject knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge, and crucially, what can't be achieved when those things are even somewhat lacking. It, the, the, the best bit about the book are these wonderful interviews and discussions with practicing classroom teachers and you get to see kind of under the hood of their teaching and as I say what becomes so apparent is the importance of subject knowledge pedagogical content knowledge and how that doesn't just weaken or strengthen teaching but how it literally changes what the teacher is even aiming at or what they think they're aiming at with certain topics in mathematics really highly recommended you can pick it up pretty cheap actually on ebay so yeah, one to look out for. What about you, Lloyd? What are you reading for? Well, it's a piece that was actually recommended by Catherine Morgan on Twitter. Sort of, she recommends a lot of good stuff and sort of caught my eye. Um, and I've sort of put it to one side, thinking, oh, well, I've got a bit of space in half to read that. I'm glad I did because it's a really, really, really great piece. It's from the Harvard uh, Business Review. Um, so it's a piece called uh, In Praise of the Incomplete Leader. It's by, I'm going to try and try and get the author's names right now. It's by Akona. Malone, Wanda, Olakowski, and Senge. Uh, and basically it's a collaborative piece which that, that comes together to really sort of boil down this idea that leadership is not about being all things to all men and being able to be absolutely brilliant in every element of it. And, and it, you know, and I know it's, it's a little cliche potentially that, but this does a really good job of illustrating that. And they boil it down to four key elements. I won't spoil it for you. Uh, but it's a, it's a very insightful article. Um, one I've actually shared with a few other people who are not in teaching as well, because uh, I think it rings quite true across uh, probably different different areas. And, and yeah, I, I took a lot from it. So yeah, I would definitely uh, I would definitely have a look out for that in praise of the incomplete leader. Um, yeah, and thanks Catherine for the uh, for the heads up and the, the tag to it. So Kieran, what are you reading for? Mine's also an article. It's um, it's by Gareth Metcalf. And it's called Sequencing Maths, Helping Children Spot Patterns. And it was in, a, I think it was in a, a while ago in Teach Primary, certainly on the website. And, you know, I, I would love Garth to write a book because he's really clear. He's really concise. And it's one of those rare peaks into his thinking where he sort of outlines really, really clearly with really real, well chosen examples how he would make children get a sense of the, you know, the, the beauty of mathematics, you know, just by choosing five really carefully put together 
questions and yeah you know even if he doesn't write a book i think well i'll, I'll be happy to settle for having him on the, the podcast as often as possible but yeah definitely check that one out i think i'll retweet this at the same time as this episode going out so then the focus of this week's episode classroom talk as always i think the first thing we need to do is decide what we mean by classroom talk how would you define it chris for the purposes of this episode i would say i think what we're going to try and aim at to discuss is classroom talk as discussion either between pupils and i mean i think a lot of what we will talk about today will focus on that but also how that can link to conversations between pupils and teachers um, and also more general classroom discussion what i would say is a lot of what i'm going to be thinking about today or what i'm going to be driving at is discussing classroom talk in terms of something a bit extended so not just those quick back and forth between say a teacher and a class where you're looking to see whether they've understood something very briefly but something that just lasts a little bit longer where perhaps the focus alongside developing children's thinking is also to develop that oracy which is so important to their development. Chris has kind of summed it up quite nicely there in terms of the framing for this for this episode and I think you know, it's quite it's quite an interesting one, I think, to dig, to dig down into because, yes, we talk a lot about how you know it's 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 very in at the moment. You know, checks for understanding how we how we construct those and how we are very forensic in going back and forth with children and things. But actually, it's, it'd be quite nice, wouldn't it? To, and I'm sure we're going to do as we're going to do today is delve into that structuring of children's oracy and the, and the discussions that they have in a class because I would hazard a guess at this being quite a difficult thing to do uh, speaking personally and over experience over time getting the whole room to be doing this right I would suggest is, is a challenge and so I'm really excited to sort of dig in with with you guys and into into what, we, what what some of the thinking is around it. Yeah, it's probably something I should have mentioned as well is what it what it, what we're not talking about as well. So obviously here we're talking about classroom discussion that relates to the learning at hand. We're not talking about kind of off task chat for want of a better phrase. It's tempting to say, oh well, in the productive classroom that sort of thing never happens, but. You know, there are sometimes occasions when children are working on a piece of art over a significant period of time. And there are moments in on a, like a Friday afternoon where you're just thinking, you know, this is this is just a nice activity. It's been a long half term. Let's just enjoy this. And you're happy for there to be some of this for want of a better phrase off task or unproductive chat. That's not what we're talking about here today. We're talking about classroom discussions that link directly to um, a bit of learning that we want children to concentrate on. As Lloyd says, there's definitely some overlap with things like formative assessment, questioning, et cetera, but we're gonna try and analyze it as its, as its own thing. I was interested also that you mentioned there, Lloyd, about the difficulties of it. And it, it immediately made me think of something that I hadn't thought of in the prep for this episode, which seems so obvious, but just jumped out to my mind about how challenging it might be and can be when we've when you've got a class where you, where the behavior isn't exactly where you want it to be so i think everything that we talk about today has to be taken with that as like the like the background that's the context of everything we talk about which is that if certain 
ways of dealing with things in the classroom are well structured and your routines are in place, then you can start thinking about the joys of extended conversation uh, with children in order to for them to grasp the learning. Obviously, regardless of the exact behavior that you've got in your classroom and how you're dealing with it, discussion between children and between the teacher and the class is still an essential component of what you're doing, but it might look slightly different while you are working towards the exact behavior that you want, say at the start of an academic year. So that's something to bear in mind, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, whenever I was thinking about the final question where, you know, perhaps times we want to maybe avoid classroom talk, the first thing I've got written down is that um, we should avoid it before classroom norms are established, you know, and, and there is an element of training. So probably, yeah, I'm going to move that to this part because it makes more sense. Yeah, but I would definitely, you know, there, there are routines that allow you to get the most from it, you know, that we'll cover, I think, as we go through this episode. It's also really interesting that I didn't even think to include teacher-pupil dialogue in classroom talk. The definition that I've got in my head sort of has it ring-fenced as peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, so I might actually put a question because Spotify allow you to do this thing where you put questions on the episodes and see how many other people were in the same position I was where they heard, you know, oh, actually, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That could be classroom talk on, on some level. Yeah, but I'm, I'm totally with you guys. And, and it sort of shows that we've got a, a reasonably rich conversation in store here. You know, I did an article about 10 years ago for the ATM called The Power of Talk in the in the primary classroom, maybe the primary mathematics classroom. And it was based around some of the work I did for MAST where we had teachers recording each other and we were looking at what were the children really saying to each other. And I've always been fascinated by, you know, like the work of, is it Graham Nuttall? Um, where, where you really analyze what pupils were saying and their responses to things. You know, so I think it, it's a fascinating topic to cover and I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I suppose, yeah, dive right in. How can we get the most of it? Again, I, I guess to sort of preface some of the some of the thoughts, first of all, where I'm coming from, I think you, you, you both hit on it. We, I've been doing a lot with the ECF with my, my school, like two ECTs, and we have two, three ECT plus ones who are also running the, doing the ECF as well alongside the, uh, the ECTs. And for me, <laughs> it's, it's trying to frame this now with that, with, uh, with, with that in mind a little bit of <laughs> working so hard on routines and working so hard on cultural norms and bedding those things early on. We haven't even gone there yet with, with really with, uh, with, with the teachers and that's not part, it doesn't come into part of the, the ECF a lot later on. And, and I think there's good reason for that because like you said, uh, Kieran, you know, it's, it's getting that, that culture right first now, it's not to say that we want to kill all discussion and, uh, you know, put out the flame <laughs> of, uh, of oratory in them because, because our teachers are not uh, skilled, if you will, enough to do it. And not for one minute suggesting that's the case because naturally the opportunities for, for, for dialogue will present and will, you know, it's, I, I think it's a very sort of... Um, it's a very fluid thing within within the teaching process that, 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 that these that these points present because questions arise naturally out of instruction and I think uh, when questions arise that there is the opportunity for uh, for discussion now that is probably where I would say we would start with the best terms of in terms of the, the best facilitation of classroom talk uh, around you know framing framing it around questions to start with in particularly in terms of 
novice teachers and teachers who are earlier in their career. I guess I'm I'm, I'm in that kind of frame of mind. I'm sort of, I guess I'm speaking from from that perspective. I'm sure Chris will will offer more sort of a wider insight. But I think you know that getting that. Uh, modeling right I think is important I think I think children need to see what good oracy is they need to be that needs to be modeled to them now that can be done in a variety of ways if you're fortunate enough to have another adult in the classroom I think explicit modeling of oracy and good practices there is important to the children because there will be some children in that room that just simply won't have seen like effective interactions between adults in their home life and I think like we have a duty to, to show them how it's best to, to communicate with each other and then therefore get the best outcomes from that communication. So I would say certainly a question, a modelled question and a modelled interaction between two adults is a, is a place to start. really like that idea. Yeah, it's something that I've seen in where there's been a really productive relationship between a teacher and a teaching assistant, often that is a, a jumping off point for the way to conduct conversations, for the way to ask productive questions, for the way to deal with um, challenges as well. The number of times I've seen really expert work from a teaching assistant who asks a question that you know they already know the answer to, but they're just asking it either because they're working with a less experienced teacher and they've noticed that there's a part of the explanation that maybe hasn't quite worked for some of the children so they're just giving a hint to the teacher to go back round to that or they're modeling how to deal with not having comprehended something new so yeah I, I think that I that that modeling of oracy as well as modeling classroom norms that way is a great thing to do if you're in the fortunate situation to have um, another adult in the room and I liked how you attached that idea to the idea of behavior and routines because I'd say that's number one really isn't it for classroom discussion to work the behavior in the classroom has to be in a place where it will work and that comes down to the the routines that you have in place and the expectations and that comes down to really being very clear with what you expect from um, the talk something i would attach onto that this idea of clear expectations is perhaps the idea of clear timings i find that the classroom discussions that i have often benefit from saying something like okay um with your shoulder partner take 30 seconds to discuss this question question off you go that alongside a, a silent countdown with a, a hand of five four three two one zero so that they they've got that time to bring a conversation to an end because that's quite a tricky thing for children to do i think that can support in terms of routines I guess along those lines as well this idea of embedding routines this is kind of linked to that the idea of a seating plan those people who know me when it comes to discussions around behavior management will know how important I think careful thought about a seating plan and, and being willing to be flexible with that after a week or a couple of days going, no, this isn't working. This child needs a bit more of my attention. And so they're coming right up front or, or whatever it might be, or these two children, there's a clash there or they're, they're best mates and they will not talk about learning. They're just going to talk about Arsenal, say, I want them separated, for example. So part of that kind of behavior and routines might be the use of a seating plan. Naturally as well, if you think about seating more generally, if you've got your children in pairs or in fours, how you conduct the um, classroom talk is going to depend on how they're sat. And I know that same sounds really mundane, 
But if you've got them in pairs, then that's the person they're going to be talking to. And so you need to keep a close eye on whether that's a productive relationship. Whereas if you've got children in fours, you might say, well, talk to a shoulder partner, or you might say, talk across the table to your um, face partner, for example. And then that maybe gives a bit of variety. In short, how you put children around the room will define how that um, discussion is going to work. The strategy that I go to again and again and again when it comes to talk in classes, think, pair, share. I love think, pair, share. I love being able to take the pressure off children's discussion. I love giving children the, the opportunity to have a think before they start talking. Often in classrooms, I see teachers ask a question. They say, now talk to the person next to you, off you go. And the children that aren't as confident perhaps with speaking or quick off the mark, just end up turning to their partner and waiting, waiting for them to say whatever it is that they're going to um, discuss. And I think having that bit of thinking time before they discuss and then before they share it with the class can A, take the pressure off, B, give a nice bit of thinking time and C, just lead to a slightly more a gentle atmosphere for discussion, which I think is preferable. I think you can see that when we say, you know, before COVID, when we used to go to CPD sessions in the same room and they would open up to tables full of teachers, let's have a conversation about perhaps something that we've only just learned about. And I, I certainly don't like that situation, you know, through no fault of any presenter that I've ever, you know, sort of listened to speak, just because if I don't know the person and I don't feel there's an established relationship or boundaries, you know, or expectations for the conversation, I'm, I'm reticent to take part. So I can only imagine what children who have, you know, much less life, life experience than, than I do feel in that, in that same situation. So, yes, yeah, that's a really good point you you bring up, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, hard not to continually advertise Hawks Farm. Um, but when I went, it's the first time I'd seen Think Per Share executed really effectively. You know, you they like you said, they were in twos, turn to the partner, focus discussion, and then back into uh, back into the lesson. And all those things that you guys have described, they had those routines in place. So there were there was the timed element. They knew who they were talking to, you know, and. You know, I think it speaks to what you said at the start, Lloyd. You know, this is not easy to do, but I think you can get really great conversations with the, the requisite legwork, I think. I know Matt, uh, you know, and, and his work with Step and, and Hawks Farm and stuff, and uh, they, he, I know he's talked extensively about error tracking and, and just part of that, uh, that route you walk, and I'm sorry if I've stepped on any toes there, if that was a point, but um, a set route to walk for for what whilst they are having conversation, I think is a really good idea, like because you are not just, you know, where you position yourself in the class is really important as a teacher when that discussion happens. Like Chris talked about countdown strategies. I think it's great. Non-verbal cues and things like that. It's a really, really good thing to do because uh, it's not really, you're not narrating over the top of their discussion. I think that's important that you don't, you don't interrupt. Um, but yeah, but certainly error tracking is a really good thing. I just uh, harked back to something that I saw in a training a long, a long time ago, actually, in my, in my career. By a, by a chap called Tim Rylands, who um, sadly is no longer with us. Um, and he did a lot of training around uh, literacy and, 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 you know, this was several years back. And he, he gave he always gave, gave me a piece of advice once and I, I really, really stuck with me to, to this day. And I think this is a great thing to do if you are encourage, encouraging dialogue. Now, this is probably more between student and teacher dialogue, I would say. 
But I think you could definitely use this, you know, potentially if you were modeling with your adult as well. But he said, just have a, have a cup, have a cup with you. Um, and he said, you know, that obviously not full of hot stuff because you'd be uh, safeguarding central. <laughs> but, but a cup that looks like you've got a tea, but it's obviously full of water only, of course. Uh, and uh, he said, just, just take a drink on someone's talking back or thinking of an answer and he said because it's a depressurization strategy whereas if a child sees you taking a drink you're not staring them down for an answer i thought and i always stuck with this years on and i, and I still do it this day so i'll have a, like a cup of my room uh try to anyway uh, and and i think it's such a nice little strategy to help and i know chris has talked before about taking the pressure off children because it's about making them comfortable it's about getting the culture in your room right for it and all of the culture comes from the norms, routines, behaviours and the small things we do to create that. And, and I think the last thing I, I would just add at that point is if children value oracy, if they see that as the norm, as the thing that is valued within the classroom, if the other children, their friends, their peers, because again, and I know we've talked about this on other podcasts, the, 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 their perceptions and peer perception on, is this cool? Is this a cool thing to do, to talk and sit and talk to my partner? Is that the norms and culture of the room? Because if it's not, and, and that is very much the case in your in your room, then they, they're not going to, you know, with all the best instruction in the world, they are not going to talk to each other about the thing you want them to talk to, to each other about. So I think that, and, and that's a very complex thing. That, and, and I know Peps has got a whole book on it, of course. <laughs> and I know Harry Fletcher Wood has got an excellent book, Chris, that you recommended on, uh, you know, a few weeks ago as well. So there's, there's plenty of things to read about it and things that it can help you to create that culture. But I do think it's a very complex beast. Yeah, it is an incredibly challenging thing to do. I mean, I think it, in some ways, the, the development of those relationships and, and making effectively learning and, and this important aspect of learning the norm in your classroom goes somewhat beyond the sort of tips that we can fire out in an episode like this because it's so much about the culture of your classroom. It's so much about understanding the relationships i mean it can be something as simple as working out that you've got a kid that a lot of the children in the class look up to who is used to not doing things in the classroom that they're asked to do and with the best will in the world you working out how to ensure that that individual child learns and engages and then the rest of the children follow that might be a slightly controversial thing to say actually the idea of that sometimes we need to notice that there are a child or there's a child or there are two or three that if I get them learning, the rest of the class is going to fall, is going to fall in line. And so I'm going to spend a little bit extra time and then I'm going to ask some extra questions of those. I'm going to make sure that they feel success in this classroom for a couple of weeks in particular, because I know that's going to cascade through the rest of the classroom. And that's something I found in a, in, in a lot of classrooms that I've worked in. And yet it almost feels a little bit daring to, to admit it that sometimes we do have to deal with these things on a personality level. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you made there. I'd like to also briefly to circle back on the idea you talked about um, from Hawks Farm step where they were looking at having a route around the room. It's something that I hadn't really considered when I was thinking through what I was going to talk about in this episode the idea of, okay, so what am I doing to be most productive while the children are having these conversations? I have a tendency to, and even when I describe it, I use this word, I have a tendency to float rather than have a route. 
And I think there is, I think over time it becomes a route, but whether I consciously plan that out as well as I should do is um, certainly something for me to bear in mind the next time I get to be in a classroom for a considerable period. I think that's a really interesting point. My, my first point was a little bit broader and having something in place, a system in place that allows for listening. Because Andrew Jeffrey talked about listening and how important it is in the start of season three. Matt talked about it in the middle of that season. And I think it's more than just off you go. It's having something in place that you know what's being discussed. You know, and, and it may be as precise as error tracking and as having rear in the classroom. But I think the idea that you are taking in as much information from the pupils as possible. I think that's the important thing. So it wouldn't be too hard on yourself for not having a pre-planned route. It's, it's an excellent example of how deeply Matt and his colleagues think about that kind of thing. But it, it, it's when, when I thought about what, what's the principle here, it's not just being off you go. It's going beyond that and taking back as much information as possible. That ties in really nicely with something else that I think is worth discussing. The idea that our classroom conversations, peer-to-peer, they need to be really purposeful and planned. I mean, I've, I've been into lessons and I've conducted lessons where a bit of, well, turn to your shoulder partner and talk about X has been just me keeping children awake. And there's no problem with that. There's no problems with just a quick, okay, I can feel that the attention is starting to drift a little bit. Let's, let's get them a little bit more involved. That's not necessarily a problem. But at the same time, if that's the that's the kind of limits of your purposes for classroom discussion, then you're very much not using it to its, um, to how, as well as it can be. So thinking in advance about, well, when am I going to use this moment of think, pair, share? What question am I going to ask? And going back to exactly your point, Kieran, what aspects of the discussion am I going to be listening in for as I go around the room? What misconceptions am I, you know, am I attuned to? So yeah, I think making sure that it's something that you plan. And again, we've talked about planning recently. That doesn't necessarily mean something you've written down in detail. It just means something you've thought about um, before the lesson begins. I think there's lots of the little bits and pieces that are really valuable for classroom discussions. Again, this links back to something you mentioned when you were talking about CPD that you've been part of, Kieran. Note-taking. When we talk about think, pair, share, sometimes saying to children before they have their discussion or even while they have a discussion saying, well, you've got your mini whiteboards. I would like you as part of your discussion to write down two things or three things or one thing, or I'd like you to write down these three or four things before you have your discussion. That can be really valuable as well. And I don't just think that on a, on a classroom level. I've done enough professional development now, I've led enough professional development that I can see what leads to more productive conversations between adults and being able to say, okay, we've talked about this. I'd like you to take notes relating to these two or three questions, silently, independently, do that for a couple of minutes. And as soon as you've done that and everyone on your table has done that, feel free to have a discussion. It's far more productive when it comes to conversations about things we've been learning than here are some questions, talk about them on, on your table. Far more productive because people really explore what they do and don't know when they're taking those notes, which gives them that sense of curiosity and purpose 
that drives that discussion that comes afterwards. So yeah, just a little bit on think pair share, maybe including the use of mini whiteboards and note taking, I found to be pretty positive. I think one of the things I was thinking about there as you were talking, Chris, what, what are the correctives? What are the, and I know I'm, I'm turning it on his head a bit here now, but I want to like, let's, how do we think about the correctives for oracy here? Because I, I know there'd be so many teachers listening to have uh, like a, a tough class, right? Where behavior isn't necessarily the perfect idyllic norms and cultures that the ECF lays out that we're aiming for, the Nirvana. The often lived reality of it is that we don't get to that Nirvana. We get, we get as close as we, we damn can, but we don't necessarily get there. So, what, you know, my sort of thinking is like, what are the cor correctives for oracy? How do we go around without sort of crushing conversations? but also at the same time, do we pose sort of questions that help children, guide children, but are not, are not too intrusive? I don't know. I, sorry, I know I've like broke the format a little bit here by asking a question. I'm just really interested in to hear both of your, your, your expertise because, you know, you, you both have a lot to say. So like, I really want to know what your thinking is. And then I'll listen to you and then see if I've got anything to add because I just think, I think it's a really interesting one about how do we interact in that. So I know we can model but like in the same way we would correct behaviours, how do we do, how, how would you, what are your thoughts on that? Classic LWJ curveball. I'm pretty sure you threw one of those in last time you were on. You may not get invited back much more often, Lloyd, if this is going to be the, the right. way things go. <laughs> if, you th if you think about the stuff I've written before, I'm trying to guide acceptable or beneficial responses as much as possible before you get in that situation. Like there are certain phrases that will work in a conversation that can make them more productive because they lead to an expression of what the pupils have thought. You know, my big thing is that pupils, they may understand, they may see patterns, but they can't articulate what they see. And if we provide them with a scaffold, and perhaps then if you're tracking and you refer back to the scaffold, and that was fantastic, where's the because or what's the why? And then push that conversation on a little bit further because you don't necessarily want to get involved in a mathematical conversation at that point because that defeats the purpose of the error tracking because you're trying to pick up what's the big idea that's been missed here or where are we going wrong and then you go back and you do your instruction you, you do some more examples so i think yeah it's having a scaffold for me and then pointing pupils towards the scaffold because you know they're not going to be able to you know they don't become articulate and eloquent overnight but if they're in the same situation time and time again eventually that becomes a part of who they are and how they approach dialogue, you know, just going right back to what you guys were saying. So I think, yeah, it's have a scaffold and guide towards that when you hear that it's not being utilized as effectively as you might hope. Yeah, it is a great question, Lloyd. And I'm always keen to engage in the conversation that gets into the practical elements of it. It's very easy on, especially on a podcast to start talking about all the, oh, we can do this. And I like doing that. And it gets away from the practical day-to-day -day realities. I would say the things that jumped into my mind when I've had classes where I've struggled to engage them in productive conversation, like peer on peer. Firstly, I'd say if they are, if you're trying to engage them in conversations which are more than peer on peer, when there's say a group of three or four, don't, don't do that. If that's not working, stick to pairs and stick to the same pairs for a period of time so that becomes predictable. I would also say something I've done is 
and, and this kind of ties back into something we talked about earlier, where I have a tendency to float, to try and gather information. If I've got a class where I think they're struggling just with the behavioral expectations effectively of collaborative talk, I will stay at the front of the room where I can see everyone and I can see whether that discussion is happening for a while. Eventually, where things are really working well, I might start to move around the room. Um, it's worth noting as well that it isn't necessarily the front of the room that's the best place for that. Sometimes the back of the room is even better for that, where the children know that you can see them, but don't know whether you're looking at them at that moment. I know that sounds... Um, a bit like uh, I'm acting as a security camera, but really actually just being at the back of the room for that can be a bit more supportive in some ways rather than, so they know that they're being observed, but at the same time, they don't feel like you're glaring at them can be a really nice way to deal with things. You make that a teaching point rather than saying today, I'm going to be using partner talk in order to facilitate the learning of mathematics. In the back of your mind, you're thinking today, I want the children to get better at partner talk. And that's your goal because you're going to use it across the rest of the year as a pedagogical tool. At first, you're thinking, how do I build up to this slowly? So you might start off with small chunks of time. So talk to your partner about this very simple thing. What answer did you get? 10 seconds, off you go. And then you gradually build it up. Equally, you can use things like sentence stems. So things like, okay, we're talking about something we liked about this chapter in the book. Here's a sentence stem I'd like you to use. And even scaffolding it as far as, okay, children on this side, your person A, put your hands up, person A, children on this side, your person B, put your hand up, person B. Today, person A is going to go first. Because again, it's these little structural elements of partner talk that some children struggle with about who goes first. And so making that quite structured at first and then loosening the reins over time can be supportive. When, we, when it comes to talking about modeling is the idea of, oh no, we want complete sentences. We want whole sentences. We want children to talk in full sentences. And I'm sympathetic to that point of view. I think there is definitely a case in which we can support children to be more clear in their spoken communication. But it's that that I'm focused on. I want them to be more clear rather than just moving towards a sentences that sound like they could be have been read from a book and part of that more often than not I don't know if this is your experience guys you can probably feed back to me on this I find the thing that children struggle with most is not just going on and 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 not knowing where to where to draw a line or not thinking in advance how to be brief ironic given that I've now talked for about two minutes um, non-stop but yeah I find that that's supporting them to be concise is a really big challenge and the thing that I focus on across a year and sometimes that will just mean interrupting I think it's a, it's a really uh, really valid point there so like there's there's naturally with personalities going to be stronger personalities than others in, in the classroom and when you're structuring and supporting oracy in the classroom it's something you have to consider and you have to, like, like Chris said, you, you really do have to explicitly model for both parties. One, when someone needs to bring things to a close, that's a bit of emotional intelligence from that, from that, you know, we've got, we, we have a duty to, to develop emotional intelligence, to be able, the ability to read a room, read what's going on in front of you as a social cue. Uh, 
but also the, the, the ability to speak up and to go, sorry, can I just, you know, and step in and, and, and have this say and, and children famously aren't, are not, well, adults famously are not very good at it. Like my dad would talk for Wales. Like after, you know, it's, it's, I did chip in, I just had three days of it. I did chip in, like, over, you know, at the end of the day, we, if you do, if nobody models that for you, if nobody makes that explicit, if nobody kind of codifies that for you, then there will be some people that just will, will, will never learn that, you know? And, and so, and, and I feel this kind of echoes back to that kind of, again, I'm, I'm coming, coming back around to the ECF, like, I just think that the attention to detail in there in terms of codifying things that we should have codified a long time ago in teaching and, and that is now thankfully has happened in a lot of senses and, uh, and I know TLAC is also very good for doing that as well and you know but getting down and actually saying out loud this is a thing that needs to be taught and needs to be explicitly said I think that is there's such a power in that you know and, and realistically if you want children to engage in the process properly uh, then, then you you have to do that. I think it's really interesting as well. Just, just finally, um, in terms of like, I, I go back to the question, like in terms of what we do and how we how we correct it. Because my head is thinking like, do, do we? It's a fine balance, isn't it, between when you intervene as a teacher that is going to stop a child that potentially has has worked up the courage to to explain something back to the partner. I think so. I'm going to crack this here. And, and it might not be correct or it might not be right. And then it's knowing that as a, as a practitioner to say, okay, I'm going to let them go with that a minute just because you know your children and you know your context and you know that they need that confidence to talk. And it, they might be wrong, right? And, and I know, you know, that, that goes, that flies in the face of smashing down misconceptions and whatever, right? Yeah, I, I know that. And it probably isn't a, pop, it isn't a popular thing to say. But it's important, isn't it? You know, when you think about relationships and you think about the, 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 if you want to foster the right culture in your room, you've got to know that stuff. I think that, you know, and you've got to be able to work as a practitioner, which makes it that much harder when you're an early career teacher, because you, you, you just don't have that experiential knowledge of seeing children in that situation, seeing those interactions thousands and thousands of times and going, oh, I know that, that he, she, or he or she needs that bit of space here. Uh, to do that and uh, again I know that's not a nice neat takeaway for, for you from the podcast but I think it's worthwhile talking about because I think it's, it's you know it's, it's, a, it's a pertinent sort of issue when, when you think we're considering oracy yeah I, I think that makes so much sense there is such um, a person-to-person class-to-class individual element to talk and how you deal with partner talk in particular I would say something that might be a more general takeaway though, and this is something that people will be sick of me hearing me say, but I think being careful with praise um, when people are, when children are having had that conversation, when they are feeding back, the use of, I've not really got a term for this yet, but I guess neutral encouragement, just like, oh, thank you. Great stuff. Let's move on. But also knowing that that's what you're going to say, regardless of whether the answer is mind blowing or whether it's something that isn't quite right so that children yeah just again as i say all the time you take the pressure off not just from how you deal with things when they're not correct but also by how you deal with things when they when they are correct because if you know one child hears oh that's incredible wonderful and then the next child hears just thank you it, it feels like a real kick in the guts i find it really interesting as you guys were speaking when you're thinking about, okay, how do we make this really practical? How do we 
scaffold this for anyone who's listening and wants to improve how they structure their, their talk. Are we in the scenario where when we're training pupils, you know, like the when the problem difficulty is high and the mathematical difficulty is low, is that the same kind of situation? Or if we have the task that's not really that challenging and not, not, not that really engaging on a cognitive level, will the pupils buy in less? And I don't know if I'd find the answer in my head as I was listening to you, but I'm thinking, okay, do we make these structured talks things that everyone can access and then go from there? Or does there need to be a certain level of cognitive demand that we include in these four pupils to buy in on a, on a realistic level? Because obviously we don't want them to just sort of phone it in, so to speak. I was, I was going to add to that actually here and there because that was what I was thinking as well. <laughs> as, we was, as we were talking, I was kind of thinking to myself, we, does this rely on children having enough knowledge, having enough competency with what they're doing? And then when we think of deficit between potentially children who may not receive uh, or may not or maybe maybe coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds not having as wide a vocabulary as wide a knowledge base as other children so I, I guess I'm th- I'm sort of angling toward, towards that question of when is the right time to do it uh, and I guess that comes back to professional judgment around when you when you sort of uh, you, you you structure that oracy for them um because that has to play in doesn't it i think there's a, a like a bare minimum of challenge that's required for partner talk or any activity really to be engaged to be engaging and i know that's almost a dirty word in education but to, to literally make children go well this is something worth doing there's a purpose to this and that links back to what we were talking about earlier about something being planned and purposeful i think alongside what kieran's saying there though I definitely think it's the case that if I were looking to stretch children in what I wanted them to do with the talk and I were looking perhaps for the first time for a a kind of partner talk that might lead to a really structured answer where they they might expand on something, talk for three or four sentences, you know, relatively kind of quite far down the school, it's probably going to be the case that the cognitive demand of what I'm asking them to talk about is a little bit lower because it's something that they're really um, familiar with or they're beginning to master. A really good example of that, or I like to think anyway, I remember a few years back I taught um, the invention of Hugo Cabret with a, bun- with a bunch of year fives. And this was a class where I'd struggled with partner talk and, and you know, it was something that they, they had worked on it in previous year groups, etc. But it just wasn't something that was the strength of theirs. And what we did with each chapter of the book was retell the story from the beginning using a text map. And by the time we got to say chapter nine or 10, they had retold in their own words and heard a partner retelling chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, etc. And it was the way we did it, I did it was that there was this kind of rally back and forth. And whenever I said, okay, and switch, the other partner would take over carrying on the story. Um, But the key point about this was that by the time they had got to kind of chapter nine, 10, etc, all of them, even the most reluctant of speakers were quite confident in what they were doing. And some of the sentences that I heard them using to talk through the book and what happened, the plot summaries were really great to hear. And I think in certain cases, having that in the back of our minds, thinking, okay, this is going to be quite a complex thing that children, I want children to do in in their partner talk. So I'm going to make sure it's something that they're quite confident with, something they're quite familiar with 
is perhaps a relatively sensible way of doing things. And equally, the other end of things, if something's particularly cognitively demanding, just to kind of think through, then it might not be the time to introduce a bit of or a strategy in partner talk that they're not particularly familiar with. So I think if we're grinding off how we can make the most of it, I think I had a point about carefully plan them into your lesson sequence. And I think, you know, you guys spoke to that where you almost sit back and you look at here's the sequence. When am I going to benefit most from having this and knowing precisely why you want to use talk. But my final point was not to assume that because a pupil is proficient in a subject, that they'll be able to guide a conversation with someone who's less proficient. And I think it's very easy to assume that because a pupil is really good at mathematics, that they'll also be quite confident in terms of how they engage with dialogue and can structure you know, their, their peers. Um, and so, you know, I think if we want to get the most out of it, I think we avoid that situation. I think that's a, that's a very, very sensible point you've made there, Kieran. I think like there's there's an easy it's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? You know, the the to, to to not consider carefully that we're asking one child to explain something to another child that relies on both our subject knowledge and the ability to explain. It's not just the 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 the, the pure knowledge that that it rests on. You know that, that you know that's what we do as teachers. We instruct and we 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 convey knowledge in that way. So it's it's a really really important point, isn't it? And to, when you when you think about how children interact knowledge and interact with each other, it has to be a consideration. I, th- I think like as well, it's it's worth mentioning for me the fact that when we do when we give these opportunities for oracy, that we we really genuinely want to be forensic about what is going on with the oracy in the room and that we are not just doing this from a purpose of this is something that needs to be in a lesson because of the legacy of what should be in lessons and I think that is so prevalent in primary teaching probably other teaching in terms of it is the ingredient that you must have in your lesson to make lessons lessons and actually not really paying attention to the detail of what is happening in that talk. And I, and that, that I know, so I know it's a really simple point there and it's nothing particularly profound, but I, but I do think that it's an important one, like, because I just think so, I know I'm speaking for myself here. I have done it because, oh, now I've asked a question. Now they talk to each other and now I'm going to walk around a bit and I'm going to, so, but am I actually listening? Am I actually, what am I actually doing with what the information I'm receiving from the children that are talking to each other? What am I, what am I gleaning from that? What do I need to do as a practitioner to help structure for children who are potentially less confident with their oracy? I get, yeah, that's the point I was sort of making. Sorry, I, I, but, I, but you're absolutely right. It comes back, back to that point of like, you know, expecting children to just go off and, and do it. And, and that's just and that's kind of, I'm not suggesting for one minute that teachers are just, you know, going off and, and, and looking out the window for, for, for a couple of minutes, you know, but it's about really, really honing in on, on what children are doing. And, and that then informs what we do, because that's it, isn't it? That's the formative nature of, of teaching, isn't it? It's like, what does that mean about what we do next as a teacher for their oracy? So then I suppose that that, that leads on quite nicely to, when might it be most useful to utilize talk 
and when might it best be avoided? I think that partner talk is such a versatile pedagogical tool that it's hard to narrow it down to just a few things. But I think it's worth pointing out a couple of things where I think it's particularly valuable. I think whenever we're asking children to reason about something or give their opinion on something, questions that begin with say why or how, or why do you think X, Y, and Z? I think that's a really excellent time to use partner talk. Again, this is relying on certain relationships and certain routines and behaviors being in place. But I think that's a particularly valuable time. Also where children are in some way discussing alternatives. So what I mean by that is let's say we're in mathematics and children are, have been adding you know, 87 add 46. And I, we've seen around the room that there are different methods getting children then to say, okay, so how did you do that? Or did you, did you find a way that was different to your partner? And if you had the same method as your partner, can you find another method that someone else in the room might have done? I think as soon as you've got alternatives that are equally valid, that's a great time for partner talk because firstly, it's just really good to talk about that kind of reasoning, but also because it validates the idea that there are different ways of thinking about things, which is, you know, something that we always want to encourage in the classroom. When we're trying to retrieve something that's a little more complex, something that isn't just a, you know, one word or one sentence answer, I think it's really valuable as a tool at that point. I've mentioned it already, but the idea of, you know, retelling a story using text maps or this sort of thing, you can do that on a whiteboard and you can assess, I guess, to some extent that way if you want to, but beyond assessment, just the idea of getting children to remember something and to think a bit more deeply about something. Um, partner talk could be great for more complex retrieval, I think. Cognitive psychologists might call that elaboration. I know that in the Learning Scientist book, Understanding How We Learn, they talk about elaboration as something that can be really beneficial in terms of committing things to long-term memory. And so, yes, yeah, so I think I'm definitely with you on that one. My final point would be in terms of, you know, when it's most useful. We all, we've often talked on this podcast about when we want to guide people thinking and we want them to think really hard about something and it's knowing what it is we want them to think about and then setting up these really carefully structured situations in which we can guide because, you know, we're not going inside their heads, not within the next 20, 30 years anyway. So we have to find other means. And I think this kind of situation, you know, where we have them elaborating in a structured way with a partner, I think that allows us to focus their thinking in a, in a particularly productive, beneficial way. I think the only thing I would add, and again, fine, you know, sort of a final point here for me, it would be that consider when in the learning sequence you want to open it up to this. I think, is this, are you going to be launching into a lot of this right at the beginning when it's in its infancy? I'd argue that potentially that might not be the best idea, but maybe leaving it a little bit further down the line and looking at the ratio of how much, how much of those why and how questions, like Chris said, you ask, compared to when that's happening in the sequence of learning. I think that's a really important point. And again, for early career teachers, something that is more complex, for teachers who are more experienced, have more of a handle on it because you know, well, I'm not going to 
you know, submerge them in that because they, they're going to, you know, they'll, they'll drown without information. They won't be able to, to process and, and have those have those conversations. So it's knowing when to deploy. It's like 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 we say on all episodes of Tadapa, you know, it's, it's that armories, it's that, it's that toolkit, it's like when to deploy the right strategies at the right times. And I think with Oracy as well, I think that needs a consideration. It's not to say you don't have any talk opportunity. I guess it's the type of talk opportunity you have and when is really, really important to consider. Linked to that, I think, generally speaking, I don't tend to ask children to do a bit of partner talk at the point where I think they're confused. And I've seen this in classrooms as a tendency to say, well, hopefully it will come out in the wash. They'll have, they'll have a little chat and the one in the pair who has understood this will support the child next to them and then... Now, for me, while when children are confused about something, they've made it clear that they're holding a misconception. I want to kind of, for want of a better phrase, take charge of the discussion for a little while. I might bring it back round to partner talk, but that will ideally be at a point where I think, yeah, children are beginning to grasp this or they're gaining a bit of confidence with this. Personally, I'm a big fan of when it comes to children doing a decent chunk of independent work, I prefer to have something close to silence in the classroom. I find that if you have that bit of chat effectively that's going on in the background, even if it is seemingly productive and seemingly relating to what you're talking about, particularly, particularly in a subject like mathematics, it's quite easy for children to end up hiding that they haven't understood something by being able to have a chat with someone across the table and say, what did you get for question three? Oh, you got that. And then writing it in their book which can make life significantly more difficult when it comes to us working out which children have really understood. So I think I'm, I'm quite the fan of silent independent work or a chunk of silent independent work. How much of that there is is obviously dependent on the age range that you're teaching. In some cases, there might be none of that if we're talking right down at the bottom of the school. But as you move through the school, the importance, I think, of that silent work increases. Sounds like an obvious thing to say, but I don't think partner talk is a particularly valuable thing to do if we're dealing with formative assessment. I've, again, sounds obvious, but I've been into classrooms and I'm sure at some point I've done this myself where effectively I've said, okay, have a think about this, talk about it with your partner. And then I've asked for some kind of feedback based on that. And then the lesson has progressed because I've thought, oh, okay, yeah, it seems like they've understood this. Or possibly, or possibly just half the class have understood this and there's half the class sitting there a bit lost by it, but th their partner knows it. So they've kind of, it's, you know, they've got away with it to a certain extent. Effectively, things like Think Pair Share, great for getting children to think about a, a bit of learning. But as soon as you're thinking, oh, okay, I want to assess what children have understood, it has to be something that is independent of that something that doesn't have a little buttressing element of partner talk to begin with because obviously then you're not really finding out what the children know you're just finding out what they or their partner know which is significantly less useful so chris we set out looking for 375 ways to make the most of talk in the classroom how did we do we talked about the importance of routines and expectations including things like sharp timings we talked about making sure that it was purposeful and planned. We talked about, uh, as a key strategy, think, pair, share. We discussed the idea of 
building confidence and adapting what you do to the personalities and relationships that you have in the classroom. And part of that being things like using neutral encouragement, careful, thoughtful listening and being, to use your phrase there, Aloy, kind of forensic in what we're looking to do around the classroom, supporting children to be clear and concise, not just through modeling, but also through the ways that we um, deal with the conversations as and when, where we, you know, bring a conversation to a close, where we ask children to rephrase things in fewer words, perhaps how we needed to consider the demand of the task itself when we were considering the type of peer talk that we might request of children and how we, we had to be careful not effectively to overload children with two things that were new to them. And we also, towards the end, I would say, talked about how to make sure that we don't use this kind of talk when we're looking to assess something or when children are confused about something. And by that, I mean, partner talk. Obviously we would use, you know, you might use um, classroom discussion for some kinds of assessment, but again, that might not deal with the whole class. So eight ways to make the most of talk in the classroom. And I think hopefully, you know, I've really enjoyed that conversation. Hopefully those who are listening will find it useful, particularly you know, those who are less experienced, because I reckon more, the more experienced, like you said, Lloyd, the more natural this kind of setup will be, will be to you, you know, but I think all that's left to do is say thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Lloyd. Thank you very much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening.